Greetings, brethren, from Trinity Baptist Church in Montville. It is my pleasure and privilege to be with you this morning and open up God's Word. If you would turn with me, please, to the letter to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11. We'll begin by reading Hebrews chapter 11, excuse me, verses 24 through 26. The word of God says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Let's pause and ask for God's blessing. Our Father, we come before you this morning, a God all-glorious and all-wise, all-powerful. Our Father, may you minister to us this morning and help us to have eyes to see your glory and minds to be renewed, that we may understand your word and your ways. Please be gracious to us and help us by your spirit. Help me to be faithful to your word and help us as hearers to receive your word with penitent hearts and humility of mind, that we might know the Lord Jesus Christ and walk in his ways. Please bless us, we ask, according to your word, in Christ's name, amen. Well, here in Hebrews chapter 11, God gives us a wonderful collection of portraits of the life of faith. And they are really thumbnail sketches of saving faith. A saving faith is the particular brand of faith that the writer is concerned with. And it's important to make that distinction because these days, faith can mean all kind of things. We have corrupt politicians who might identify themselves as a person of faith. Immoral celebrities talk about just needing to have faith in yourself. And maybe uh, some of the folks you know might live by the motto that you just need to have faith and things will all work out fine in the end. But this type in Hebrews 11 is entirely different from the hypocritical and nebulous and self-centered power of positive thinking faith that we find in the world. The Hebrew writer means saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith like Noah that fears and heeds the warnings of God. Faith like Abraham that obeys and lays hold of the promises of God. Faith, according to our 1689 confession, consists of three key actions, and they are yielding obedience to God's commands, uh, trembling at God's threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But this chapter doesn't approach faith from the high tower view of theology. It, It gets on the ground. We have it in flesh and blood Portraits. Each one gives an expression of a different shade of faith. And some are grand, like Abraham, with setting out to start a new nation. Uh, Some are dramatic, like shutting the mouths of lions. But then there's Moses' example. And what I want for us to consider this morning is, what would this collection of portraits of faith lack 
If Moses' portrait was left out, what does Moses' life highlight for us about the character of faith? And we'll open this up in four points that are derived right from the text. We will see Moses grew to refuse, he opted to suffer, he lauded reproach, and he dialed in on the reward. And so if you like acronyms or mnemonics, we have gold that, uh, since we're considering this issue of the wealth of Egypt. So first consider Moses grew to refuse. Verse 24 says that by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now this is a pivotal point in Moses' life, but it's before he meets God on Sinai, it's before the burning bush, it's before the Red Sea, and these sorts of storybook moments that we think of his life. He makes this pivotal decision to refuse his royal title. Notice that it wasn't just the royalty that he refuses. It says it's the very association to have that name. And you might think of another man of faith who found himself in king's houses who is also compelled to refuse Daniel and his friends. For all their boldness and piety, they did not object to the new pagan names that were given to them in Babylon. So why does Moses reject it here? Well, this title meant that Moses was incorporated in a life of splendor. He was raised in Pharaoh's palace. He had free access to the best that Egypt could offer. All of its wealth, all of its power and pleasure were at his disposal. And it's a genuine rags-to-riches story. He's no longer a a Hebrew child spurned, but perhaps he's even now an heir to the throne. Just as Egypt once bowed to Joseph, perhaps Moses was destined for the same. And certainly he would have been a very great man at the very least. But he refuses all of this. And I want you to first see the timing of his choice. It is when he had grown up. Well, how grown up? Was this a fit of youthful rebellion for Moses? Was this teenage Moses storming off in a crisis of identity? Maybe hippie Moses renouncing money and possessions? No, it wasn't that. Turn to Acts chapter 7 and verse 21. Acts chapter 7 When Stephen gives us wonderful insight into Moses' turning point during his last sermon on earth in Acts chapter 7, verse 21, it says, And when he was exposed, that is, Moses, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Stephen tells us that this was a deliberate choice. Verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him for striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brother would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. This is a man uh, grown up 40 years of age. He was well-educated. He was learned in all the Egyptian wisdom. He sized up his situation. 
He did a little cost-benefit analysis, and he said something has got to change. It was a deliberate choice. There was no threat or force upon him. He came up with the idea himself. And it wasn't as if the power and riches and influence that he had were about to sprout wings and fly away, so he just decided he would quit while he was ahead. No, he deliberately and freely gave these things up. And so this is the timing of his refusal when he had grown up, but we want to know why he turned his back on all this. And our text indicates that there, is, there are three components to this refusal. There were three things involved in making this a complete choice for Moses. And the first was when he had grown up. We considered that. But the second and third things will make up the middle two points we'll consider. Moses opted to suffer and he lauded reproach. So secondly, Moses opted to suffer. That's back in Hebrews 11 and verse 25. It says, he chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Oh, okay, well now it makes sense. Now Moses cut himself off from the life of ease and comfort to start a life of suffering and persecution. Got it. Well, that doesn't really answer the question, does it? It leads us to ask more questions. What could possibly cause Moses to prefer suffering over luxury? And I would suggest two reasons from our text. The first reason is the people part. The people part. Right at the beginning of Exodus, if you look there even later today, if you uh, are meditating upon these things, you can see a, a taste of this bitterness that God's people experienced, the mistreatment. They had heavy burdens. They were tasked with impossible things. They had hard labor. They were angrily oppressed by a pharaoh who feared what they would ever do if they got the chance to retaliate. They suffered ruthless, severe treatment with no mercy. And Moses was not ignorant of any of this. But Moses was not some kind of hardship junkie. He wasn't signing up for the challenge of the ascetic lifestyle. He chose these people because they were God's people. And it's as simple as that. They weren't glamorous or powerful like Pharaoh's people, like Pharaoh's household. There was no compelling reason to choose to associate with them and their mistreatment except for one. God himself had chosen them. And that was reason enough for Moses. He preferred them because he was like David who wrote in Psalm 16:3, As for the saints of the land... They are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And here we see, brethren, the priorities of faith, at least one of them. That faith prioritizes God's people, the people God himself saw fit to choose. Moses offer, opted to break away from all his ties with Pharaoh and to Egypt to align himself with God. A life of persecution doesn't seem like a good choice, but the advantage was being with God's own chosen people. They are worth choosing over and above whatever enjoyments might have been found under Pharaoh's roof. So that's the people part. 
Why did Moses prefer suffering to luxury? Well, secondly, consider the poisoned pleasure. When the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan back in the fall, there were thousands of native Afghanis who suffered greatly while attempting to flee their own country. They were willing to leave everything behind, be it family, friends, possessions, livelihoods, their culture. They were even risking their very lives because they would rather suffer trying to escape than to fall prey to a violent and oppressive regime. Well, Moses realized that there was a threat on his life in Egypt. Egypt was a deep well of pleasure. It offered sensual pleasures, whether physical uh, comforts and, and carnal enticements. It offered social pleasures, like rubbing elbows with the elites of society and world leaders. Intellectual pleasures, where he had access to the latest scientific discoveries and methods. He had everything to feed the lust of his eyes, the lust of his flesh, and the boastful pride of life. And for a man in the pride of life, these things are not easily refused. Moses was one like so many of us, and he was subject to temptations. And yet for him, the choice was clear. Suffering is better than sin. Egypt's pleasures were poisoned. They were temporary, first of all, the temporary pleasures of sin. Moses had experienced enough of them, it seems, to come to the honest conclusion that they wouldn't last. The thrills had no roots. The highs had no sustenance. And hundreds of years later, we might think of Solomon, who testifies of this in Ecclesiastes, he said, everything that my heart and eyes desired, I, I gave to myself. And what did it amount to? Striving after wind. The self-indulgent lifestyle does not leave any lasting leg legacy. And so Moses flees from the fleetingness. They were poisoned because they were temporary and they were poisoned because the pleasures were sinful. Now, we don't know exactly what this meant for him. He saw that it was sin, whether that means they were sinful in and of themselves, they were derived from sin, they would lead to sin, whatever it was, the point was that he recognized the pleasure was rotten to the core. And let's camp here for a moment because the writer seems particularly interested in having us stop to notice this. <clears throat> and this is in, again, chapter 11, verse 25, rather, to enjoy, rather than to enjoy the pleading, fleeting pleasures of sin. There are many reasons to cut ties with sin. All kinds of reasons. It will kill you. That's one good reason. It will give you a bad reputation. It could cost you your job, your friends. But Moses wasn't giving up alcohol, if you will, because it was affecting his liver, he wasn't giving up lying because it left a bad taste in his mouth and his co-workers were catching on and his uh, reputation would be ruined. The pleasures of Egypt were actually pleasurable, but he refused them, not because of some negative consequences for himself, but because God's honor was at stake. There was something he saw in these pleasures that would result 
in dishonoring Almighty God. If he had stayed in Pharaoh's house, he would have had the best health care, the best meals, the, the most engaging dinner parties. But none of that was attractive to him when he peels back the curtain and sees that it is all infested with sin. And you can find a, a beautiful house with a, a wraparound porch and granite countertops and high ceilings, and it's just perfect. But you notice a slightly musty smell, and you start opening the cabinets and looking behind things, and you realize that every, every nook and cranny is infected with mold. And then you look closer, and there, there's termite damage, and the very foundations of the house are suspect. And it might be very nice, but you'd say, this isn't worth it. It's it, not with all these core problems and structural issues. It's not worth it. And that's what faith enabled Moses to see and can enable us to see. Satan tempts us with the pleasure part of sin, but Moses saw the sin part of the pleasure. The part that makes the allure of a pleasure palace crumble to the ground for the man of faith. He doesn't get caught in its spell. He recognizes the pleasure, the fleetingness, and rejects it as worthless sin. Therefore, Moses opted to suffer, and the company of God's people is preferred. So here we see one dynamic of faith, and that is that faith refuses much that seems good and chooses much that seems evil. Refusing that which is enticing and choosing that which is ugly or painful. Brethren, we have to be careful how we discern God's will. We may have many legitimate opportunities and find open doors and windows to gain for ourselves power and influence and greater wealth. And to be sure, these are good things and they can all be used to the glory of God but just, as, just because there's nothing bad about something doesn't mean there's, there's anything good in it. And power and riches and influence weren't God's will for Moses like they were in a big way for Joseph before him. Joseph ruled over all Egypt. He was only second to Pharaoh himself. And think of Esther in her time. Why didn't Moses use his position of influence to help God's people? and to set them free from their slavery? Well, because in this case, it was a, a difference between forsaking God or following God. Moses knew that his future did not consist in blessings from the palace of Egypt, but of blessings from God in obedience. And so we must consider what spiritual advantage is there in the decisions that we make. How will this help me to honor God? How will this affect the health of my soul? How will this affect the intimacy in my devotional life? How will it affect the ability of my mind to meditate deeply upon the scriptures? Faith may lead you to make surprising and seemingly senseless choices for the sake of your soul. It could mean choosing a good church over a great real estate opportunity or choosing a good church over a better job Maybe turning down a promotion that would interfere with your duties at home. Refusing a popular uh, video or movie series that has a great storyline. 
but also has temptations that you can't handle without sin. Some of us, and me included, need help from faith, need faith to help us not read the news. You know, I'm, I'm all for staying informed, and I read the news regularly. I fully endorse that. But there are plenty of news stories that we could do without reading. And faith says, I would rather scroll past and skip this than, than be tempted to grumble and gripe and complain. You don't need to know the latest if it means you compromise the purity of your heart. Faith prefers suffering to sinning. The greatest martyrs in history prove this to us. They're willing to die before they compromise and violate their conscience before God or deny the faith. But this isn't just tested in martyr-like ultimatums, brethren. It happens in our family gatherings. It happens at work around the water cooler. Deny Christ or die while we face that in our day just not in such glaring ways. Peter's faith, after all, didn't cave to a king. It caved to a a little servant girl. May God give us a faith that chooses like Moses did. He grew to refuse, which meant that he chose or he opted to suffer. And it also meant, third, that he lauded reproach. Verse 26. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Moses lauded reproach. Now, I admit, the word lauded is not as fitting here as the word esteemed. He esteemed insult would be more accurate because this is really about priorities. Faith directed Moses here to set a certain priority in his refusal. He was sure to bear reproach for the choice that he made. That is shame and humiliation. It's no small thing to turn down wealth. And Moses lived in the midst of the richest kingdom on earth. Google Egypt for images and what will you find? Pictures of the pyramids. This was a nation that had such great wealth that they were able to take on the greatest feats of construction in the history of the world. And I I came across the fact that a dowry price for an Egyptian princess was 100 talents of gold, which today would be about $100 million. You couldn't wish for greater wealth than what you found in Egypt. And men don't commonly turn down great wealth. After all, it's extremely alluring. Men covet it. They work their whole lives for it. They will sacrifice family and friends for it. It also gives a real sense of security, the promise of a stable future. I mean, imagine your high schooler getting a full ride scholarship to a great university. Can you imagine encouraging them to turn it down? You get an offer for a six figure salary raise from work and you walk away, or you've wor- worked your whole life for a pension and you just leave it behind? Well, imagine the ridicule that Moses would receive for throwing away his future. He'd be called silly, foolish, insane. After all, people would give anything for the position that he had, yet he forfeits any right to it, and he'd be humiliated for it. And furthermore, remember that 
the Hebrews are viewed as a threat by the Egyptians, and now Moses was joining the other side. He'd endure hostility in this reproach. But here again, we find faith working. It's involved in deliberate, careful judgment. It's weighing the facts. It's making a list of pros and cons. And it's working in complete contrast to this culture of subjectivity and following your heart and uh, being true to yourself that we find today. Moses didn't come to this conclusion based on sentiment or experience. He considers the matter soberly, and he turns his back on what Egypt offers. Again, faith directed Moses to set a certain priority, not to grab success, but to gain Christ. To gain Christ? This isn't Paul. This isn't the New Testament. This is the Old Testament. Well, the the writer gives us an inspired connection, brethren, to Christ, that the reproach Moses embraced was the reproach of Christ. What he faced had a face to it. It was personal. It belongs in connection with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's fascinating to meditate upon uh, what exactly the connection could be at this point between Moses and Christ. How strong could that really be at this point in history? He's, he's not of the messianic line. Moses is a Levite. He didn't have access to Genesis, of course, because he hadn't written it yet. But he would have known this history intimately. It's family history. He knew of God's covenant with Abraham, his promises to Jacob. It's all family history. And there's no doubt that Moses knew enough to trust in Yahweh and his Messiah. But brethren, it was not the bare minimum either. Moses' faith, though 1,400 years prior to Messiah appearing, was vibrant with life and activity. It saturated his choices, his priority, his lifestyle. Everything was being oriented towards the Lord Jesus, toward God's promises and God's deliverer. Moses doesn't just go on to write accounts of what God does in the the family of God's people in the early days. He writes about Christ. In John 6.45, Jesus is enduring persecution from the Jews. They're rejecting his testimony about himself. And he says to them in John 6.45, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But you do not believe his writings. How will you believe my words? This is the Moses that Peter and Stephen quote in Acts 3 and and 7 from Deuteronomy. That the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And so see that Moses' life was consistently oriented toward Christ. And even here, in the earliest stages of his faith, he thrusts himself out of Pharaoh's house and he pivots in the direction of promise. He locks on to Christ and he doesn't look away. No suffering is too great. No ridicule is too painful to endure because faith would rather have the worst with Christ than the greatest without him. No one puts rocks in their shoes because they like it. 
No one chooses to eat trash when they can have the finest Thanksgiving or Christmas meal. And if it was simply reproach that Moses was thinking about, then it wouldn't make any sense for him to choose that hardship over some great gain. But that's the point, brethren, that faith only counts gain with Christ. It's like a husband who loves his wife dearly. And if he gets to go on a business trip and experience some great feature of the world, then he's delighted to be there. But he's not with his wife. And he can't share in the greatness of that experience. Faith counts gain only with Christ. Faith only records a profit if it is profit with Christ. All the glorious gold of Egypt, what's that really worth? You put that on one end of the scale, and you put great suffering, persecution, and reproach on the other side, yet with Christ. And there's no context, no contest. Christ catapults all doubts from Moses' mind. And just as Moses chose the people of God despite the mistreatment, he regarded Christ as supremely valuable despite the reproach. You see, for Moses, the worst with Christ was better than the greatest with Egypt. And J.R. Miller writes that there is no merit or virtue in giving up anything, suffering any pain or loss, or making any sacrifice merely for its own sake. True self-denial is a renouncing of self and yielding to Christ. Jesus said that if you lose your life for his sake, you will truly find it. You will truly gain if you lose for Christ. Therefore, faith counts gain only if it is with Christ. Friends, if you don't have Christ, you don't have anything. Think of what is most valuable to you. What are you most proud of? What sparks the most joy? What's the most valuable or useful thing that you own? If you don't have it with Christ, it's worthless. And Christian, you're not missing out on any greatness in life. The place to long for, the wealth to yearn after, is found with Christ. And with Moses' refusal, these aspects of opting to suffer and lauding reproach, his refusal was complete. Having grown up, chosen affliction, esteemed reproach, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses exemplifies for us laying aside every weight and hindrance and running with endurance. But, you know, that's not all. There was something that propelled him forward in this refusal. And he was not only resolved to maintain holiness at all costs, he believed that God rewards those who seek him. He not only believed that he must seek the Lord with an undivided heart, He also believed that God's heart was to prosper him. And so finally, we have Moses looking to the reward, or in our gold acronym, he dialed in on the reward. And that's the last half of verse 26, for he was looking to the reward. In the realm of navigation and mathematics, there's a term called a vector. And if you're unfamiliar, a vector is like a special type of line, 
and don't shut down just because I'm mentioning mathematics, stick with me. It's drawn as a, a line with an arrow. So it begins at one point, and it has a certain direction, and then what's called a magnitude. And for Moses, we might say that his refusal was the magnitude of the vector. But the reward was his direction. What was he aiming at with this life-changing decision? Well, he was aiming at the reward. And the writer says that he was looking, that is to say he was locked on target. He's a ship that hasn't left its bearing. Like when I want to mow my grass, that season is gone now, but if I want to mow in straight patterns, then I lock onto an object across the yard and I don't look away from it. Just move forward so you don't stray. And that's how he's looking here to the reward. He refused his title because he was eyeing something greater. Why was he able to give up Egypt's gold and pleasures? Because he was looking to God for gratification and not Pharaoh. Moses believed, surely God will reward me. God is my portion. And now we should rightly ask, what is this reward? What's the substance of it? And we'd be pushed to investigate beyond our text because we're not directly told here. What did Moses believe the reward was? Well, it's not specified. We have as one clue a previous use of this same word, reward, in Hebrews 10.35. Look back there in Hebrews 10.35. I'll start in, in verse 32 for context. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. So how does the writer describe for us what uh, God has in store for persistent, hopeful believers? Well, verse 34, a better abiding possession. Verse 36, the promise. Verse 39, the, the, pres the preserving of the soul. Or further on in, in uh, chapter 11, verse 16, it's a better heavenly country a city that God himself has promised and prepared. And so these things might fill out some of what might be meant by the reward, but we have another clue with the third and final use of this word reward. Go back to the beginning of Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 2. <clears throat> chapter 2, verse 2 is the last occurrence of this word in the New Testament. And it says, let's see, do I have, yes, okay. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Did you catch it? Did you see the reward? Maybe not, unless you have the King James Version. That phrase, Retribution, or just penalty, or punishment, 
is actually our, our word reward. Sin is given a recompense of reward as the King James Version gives it. And so the point is we might best see the reward this way. Moses understood that he, God was not letting anyone get away with anything. Every disobedience, God says, will receive a just reward. It will be punished justly. And brethren, in the same way, in the economy of God's marvelous grace, according to his inscrutable ways, every act of faith-filled obedience will be graciously and gloriously rewarded by God in the last day. That's the reward that Moses was dialing in on and setting his sights on. It was a reward not to be received on this side of eternity. Moses wasn't living for his best life now. This world is not our home, and it's not our friend. It's certainly not a friend to the man of faith. And by faith, he was reaching beyond, through the veil of death, and into eternity. This faith gave Moses an assurance of what he hoped for, a conviction about the reward that he could not see. It's what Isaiah saw by faith when he said in Isaiah 40, Behold your God, look, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. That's the good news that faith enables us to see. And that's where we'll end on faith. There are some helpful analogies from J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. And here's a chapter on Moses, and I encourage you to read it. How was Moses able to do all of this? How could he refuse so much of what seemed good, see the true colors of sin, and look so keenly towards God's promise? Well, first he pulled out his telescope. He pulled out his telescope. As you know, a telescope is used to view planets and stars that are really, really far away. They appear very faint. They're often invisible to the naked eye until we have the assistance of the telescope to bring them nearer. Stars are enormous. And you take our star. If you took the Earth and replicated it inside, over a million Earths could fit within our star, the sun. And apparently our sun is on the small side of stars. And yet we need a telescope to see stars that are a thousand times bigger than our sun. Why? Because they're really huge, but they're really far away. We can't see them without assistance. And Moses needed the assistance of the giant telescope of faith to see the, the enormous spiritual realities that were before him. To see a savior afar off to see Christ hundreds of years away, and to see the joys of heaven. God will absolutely bless his people. Wrath will certainly come to all their oppressors, and reward is most definite for all their sacrifices. And the gravity of God's promises, brought near by the telescope of faith, pulled Moses into a holy orbit. They impacted life-changing decisions, through his trust and obedience, Moses pulled out the telescope of faith. That's how he could do this, to look to the reward. Secondly, faith was an interpreter. Faith was an interpreter. There was a time when at Trinity we held a pastor's conference for Chinese pastors. 
and we had a number of them, and it was a wonderful time. One night, my wife and I got to have dinner uh, with some other uh, the brethren and two of these Chinese pastors, and we realized that uh, neither of them spoke English, and of course, we didn't speak Chinese, but we had our smartphones, and through the wonders of technology, we were able to carry on whole conversations by going back and forth over the translation programs on our smartphones. The ability to translate is a wonderful tool. But imagine if you were in the jungle with a medical emergency, maybe in Papua New Guinea. Being able to accurately translate can quickly become a matter of life and death. And faith is an essential interpreter if we are to survive the temptations of the world. For Moses, faith turned the earthly into the heavenly. It translated the seen into the unseen, circumstances into covenants, reproach into honor. It translated as a despised people into those to whom the promises of God belong. It translated the allure of Egypt into the spiritual language of sin. Faith enabled Moses to chop down the whole jungle of worldliness to see the river of God's blessing. And by faith, he overcame Egypt and the world. And by faith, we may also, brethren, overcome. So are you looking through your telescope? Are you using your interpreter? Tomorrow, if you feel discouraged after the Lord's Day, returning to the daily grind, you need an interpreter. On Tuesday, if the kids are crazy and you feel like you haven't gotten a thing done and you don't know how you're going to get through the week, you need an interpreter. On Wednesday, if you have been slogging the whole day and you feel reluctant to attend prayer meeting and dial in, you need an interpreter. On Thursday, if you're reading the news and you're disgruntled over politics and the state of our nation, you need an interpreter. Put your faith through its paces. Exercise your faith. Give it a workout. Engage your feelings, brethren. Couple faith to your experiences. This is how we persevere and bring glory to God every day of the week. What condition is your faith in? False faith is limp. It does nothing, and it dries up. And for these Hebrew believers, reading this letter, reading the account of Moses, they had a tattered faith. Their faith was worn down. Their hands were drooping. They faced a choice like Moses faced. Was it better to follow Christ and endure hardships or return to something easier and more familiar, but yet would endanger their souls? They needed Moses' example. He couldn't be left out. Because this is what real faith does. It refuses. It chooses. It considers. It looks. And if you have a faith that prefers future reward to instant gratification, praise the Lord, brethren. If you have a faith that prefers holiness to pleasure, praise the Lord. Because these things, these preferences, these choices are not natural this kind of faith is only of God, the supernatural working of him through the Spirit 
to anyone who possesses this kind of faith. You see, these Hebrew believers needed to consider Moses, whose faith endured under pressure. They needed to consider Moses, whose faith looked ahead to promised eternal reward. Moses couldn't be left out of this hall of faith. Dear struggling Christian, do not grow weary or faint-hearted. What do you really want out of this life? Ease, comfort, everything going smoothly, no problems? Is that what you hope obedience to God will gain you? Christ's followers must follow him into suffering. Christ's way was the cross, and so must ours be. And the writer encourages us to this, saying, You have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Endure, and then when you have done God's will, then you will receive what is promised. Let Moses point you to Christ and his reward. Christ is worth everything. He's worth the suffering. He's worth the cost. Following him is worth any amount of hardship, any amount of painful self-denial, because in the end, there is great reward. Finally, Moses may have triumphed by faith, but if you know anything about the life of Moses, he was not without his sins. And so we should consider Christ. We need to look to the greater than Moses, who was from all eternity with God the Father in the splendors of heaven. But he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being, being found in human form, he humbled himself, he suffered mistreatment and reproach for the sake of God's people. It was something that seemed utterly foolish when he died on the cross in humiliating defeat. And yet God has highly exalted him and bestowed on Christ the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus overcame sin and death and the devil, and for all who rest their faith in him, he will deliver from the slavery of sin. Christ is bringing an eternal, glorious reward for all those who, like Moses, live by faith and refuse and choose and consider and look. Well, may God increase the gift of faith in us and give us eyes to see these invisible yet eternal and glorious realities that we may also lay hold of Christ by faith. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we look to you as children that you might teach us. We look to you as those who are so small and so weak. And we would ask that you would strengthen us and be gracious to us. Bless us with your Holy Spirit, 
that we might live by faith and not by sight, that we might lay hold of these wonderful, gracious truths that you hold out before us. Lord, may we take the gift that you have given, the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gift of faith, and may it propel us toward heaven. May we remember that we are not living for this world, but for the next. May we know Christ and glorify him. We ask it all for his name, that your will may be done. Amen.